please stand for the reading of the word? Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms falls. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the 1996 movie Independence Day, there's an extraterrestrial mothership that enters Earth's orbit and it begins to deploy these saucers over major cities worldwide. And it has this memorable scene uh, of, of one of these ships, these huge ships that's over the White House. And you can imagine, as it does in the film, the total chaos that breaks out all over Earth in light of this existential threat of this extraterrestrial ship. But just like that, overnight, life as people know it is over. It looks like it's going to be gone until Will Smith steps in and saves the day. The scene the psalmist, we have to do a little bit of work to get into this scene, but the scene the psalmist is describing to us is one of total chaos and fear. It's one of existential threat. It's one that they're looking at a threat so big that it threatens humanity's long-term survival. He says mountains are falling into the heart of the sea. Imagine with you out in Colorado or Alaska or even on the East Coast, imagine a mountain in, in front of your eyes falling, crumbling. Like mountains don't do that. Maybe over a couple million years they will slowly begin to erode, but mountains don't fall into the heart of the sea. And people in the ancient Near East, they understood the world a little bit differently than we do. They had a different cosmic geography. And in their understanding of the world, there was the world. And, and then what supported the world were these pillars. And, and these mountains that they could see would go all the way down into the subterranean depths uh, to, to the bottom there. And so I want you to see that the psalmist is describing a world that is shaking. The very thing that stabilizes the world is shaking. Mountains are falling, but not just mountains are falling. Water is roaring. And if you think about it, if you go back to the Genesis account, we see water, we see chaotic waters, we see a, the Spirit of God that hovers over the chaotic waters. 
And God begins to take those chaotic waters and he makes order out of them. He, he makes boundaries for the water. He restricts the water. He holds back the water so that there's land that then humans and, and animals can, can flourish on that land. But in Psalm 46, these waters that have been contained are breaking out of their bounds and they're rushing outward. And we, we know how a life-giving water can be, but also how destructive water can be. Just last month, we saw uh, these two dams that were in Libya that were compromised. They broke open after some heavy rains, and there was just like literally this avalanche of water that then spilled out, killing thousands of people. When water breaks out of its bounds, it is chaotic. It is dangerous. And so the image of the psalmist has for us in Psalm 46 is like, imagine a giant sea dragon emerging from the depths of the primeval waters that's rising up to challenge the supremacy of God. This water has broken out of the bounds that God has put it in, and now that water is challenging God. But there's more than just natural chaos. There's political chaos. The psalmist says nations are in uproar. Kingdoms are falling. War extends out to the ends of the earth. Everywhere the psalmist looks is utter chaos. The world is coming apart. It's coming apart at its seams. There's kind of this decreation scene. Anyone else look around the world and maybe feel just a wee bit anxious about something that is happening? Anybody? Just a totally non-anxious congregation. Wonderful. If you're one of those doomsayers, like this is your sermon, right? This is, this is Psalm 46. Is, if you're one of those people that is constantly worried that we are on the verge of global collapse, this is your psalm, right? Nudge your spouse or whatever and say, see, the psalmist had similar concerns. I think every, surely every generation feels this, and I acknowledge that. But it does feel like something different is happening right now. And it's probably in part because we have access to so much information. Very, very unstable things happening around the world come to us on a daily basis through our TVs and through our phones. I've never seen mountains fall into the heart of the sea. I have seen videos of the world's glaciers collapsing and crumbling into the sea, which look a lot like mountains falling into the sea. Just a few weeks ago, NASA announced that the summer of 2023 was the Earth's hottest summer since records began in 1880. We're on track to experience the hottest record, uh, hottest year on record. This year alone, in the U.S., we've had 23 separate weather and climate disasters that have each been over a billion dollars in damage, the largest number since records began. Right, so if you flip on your TV, you can see wildfire fires going on in Hawaii, that's, isn't that weird? Like wildfires in Hawaii, flooding in Vermont. Like the, the, the ocean waters in Florida were as hot as a jacuzzi this summer. Right? And on and on. That's just a few of the things. Right? Climate change is not something that's just out there. Climate change is not something that's in the future. Climate change is here right now. As far as I know, there's no extraterrestrial mothership that has entered into Earth's orbit, is threatening the White House. But there's some weird things going on in Washington, D.C. Like, there's normally some weird things happening in Washington, D.C., but it seemed like this week was a particularly weird 
week because we watched a historic vote unfold as the House of Representatives voted to remove Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, leaving a branch of our government in a state of paralysis and chaos. Not to mention, I don't have to remind you, we're about to enter into another presidential election cycle. Who's excited about that? When the last one actually led to a threat to a peaceful transfer of power for like the first time in our history's, our nation's history. The climate is unstable. It's not just that. Politics, democracy feels unstable. And then we have AI, which, depending on who you read and talk to, it's either going to save the world or it will end the world. So in 2022, there was a survey of AI experts, and they were asked, hey, what do you think the chances of AI could cause human extinction or lead to severe disempowerment of the human species? Okay, this isn't just like us. This is like AI experts. Right? In other words, like this thing that you're working on what do you think the chances are that it could like end human civilization? And the median estimate was 10%, which is a little bit high. <laughs> Can you imagine like you're at your job and you're thinking, you know, this thing I'm working on, like there's about a one in 10 chance it will end human civilization as we know it. Like at that point, like I think I would just stop working on it. Uh, in a 2016 profile in The New Yorker, Sam Altman, who's been in the news a lot this last year, he's the CEO of OpenAI, he shared that one of his hobbies is preparing for survival in the event of a catastrophe such as a lethal, lethal synthetic virus or the onset of a rogue AI that attacks us. This is his words. I try not to think about it too much, Altman says, but I have guns, gold, potassium iodine, antibiotics, batteries, water, gas masks from the Israeli Defense Force, and a big patch of land in Big Sur I can fly to. That, that's disconcerting to me. When Sam Altman says that, AI making things feel very unstable. The nations are in uproar. We, war continues on the European continent between Russia and Ukraine, which has led to the highest nuclear risk since the Cold War. And just yesterday, Palestinian militants attacked southern Israel in the broadest invasion of its territory in over 50 years. The Prime Minister of Israel has warned of a long and difficult war ahead. Right? So thousands of years later, after this psalmist writes this psalm, he talks about nations in the uproar. In this place of the, the world, nations are in uproar again. Like if you're feeling just a tad bit anxious about the world, about some impending existential threats, no wonder, right? Just as the psalmist seems the, the pillars that hold up the world as he knows it, he sees them shaking, he sees them quaking. If you look around, you see these pillars, whether it's democracy or the climate or war, and they seem to be shaking. And we have to ask ourselves, like, what do you do? Like, I remember I was in college, and I, one of my, my uh, friends, eventual roommates, it was the year 2000. Do you all remember Y2K? It was going to like collapse the civilization. And, and his grandparents had constructed this whole bunker with all this stuff. And like he was not happy because he was going to have to spend New Year's 2000 in this bunker with his grandparents. I just I, I always remember that. He was not happy about that. Um, so we try to do that. Like, could, do we have enough space in our church basement that we could convert into a bunker and see if we could ride things out? 
we'd get to know each other really well, wouldn't we? We'd be good. Should we bury our heads in the sand and just try to pretend like we can, we can hole up in northeast Ohio, in Columbiana, and Mahoning County, which seems protected from this, and see if we can just ignore it? Well, what does the psalmist do? What does the psalmist do in the face of existential threats? Look at verse 4. Amidst mountains crashing in the sea, amidst waters breaking from their boundaries, nations in an uproar, war stretching out to the ends of the earth, the psalmist looks and sees a river, a stream that makes glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will be with her at break of day. The psalmist sees water, but not water that's breaking from the bounds, water that is life-giving. This water is watering the city of God, the, the Jerusalem, where the temple is, where God dwells on earth with the people. But if you know the geography of the Holy Land, there's no river in Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits up high on the mountains. There's no water. There's no river there. But there is a spring. There's the Gihon Spring. The Gihon Spring originates outside the old walls of Jerusalem, and it was a main source of water for the city. And the ancient city, again, it was great that the ancient city of Jerusalem was up on a mountain because that would give it an advantage of being uh, protected, but it created a challenge in terms of water, right? So the only water source was outside the walls, and that made for a military weakness. It meant that if they were under siege, they would be in trouble. But we read in Second Chronicles that King Hezekiah, in preparation for the siege by the Assyrians, he blocks that stream, that spring, and he funnels the water to the Pool of Siloam, which I think... You guys have read about today because that's the same pool. You can still see it. It was excavated about 10 years ago and found. You can go and see the pool of Siloam today. That's where Jesus healed the blind man in John's gospel. And what Hezekiah was able to do is he was able to keep that life-giving water away from the enemies and bring it into the city of Jerusalem. The attack came in 701 B.C. Hezekiah's army city became under siege, but the siege failed. They, they had access to water. They were able to ride out the siege. In the midst of total chaos, amongst these soul-shaking events, these rising up of nations, the psalmist moves his eyes from the chaos to the city of God. And he sees it stable. It's not falling. It's got these life-giving waters flowing through it. When I'm on an airplane and turbulence hits, my mind almost immediately goes, we're, we're crashing. We're all going to die. Um, that's totally irrational, right? If you know anything, this is, we're not very rational creatures, but if you know anything about statistics, by far the most dangerous part of that whole day was your, was your car ride to the airport. But when you feel that turbulence, it feels like you might just you die. So what I do is I look to the airline attendant, right? And they're almost always totally chill, right? They've got their magazine, they're just enjoying a break. They're not having to, like, push the cart around and serve people. They look very content. They know somebody's flying that plane that is in total control. They're going to be just fine, and then I can relax. Amidst this chaos and stability, the psalmist looks up at this city. He sees calm. He sees stability. He sees gladness, living streams. He says, I can breathe again. And then he moves his eyes from the city of God to a battlefield, and he says, hey, come out to this battlefield and look at what I'm singing. Come and see what the Lord has done. 
He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He shatters the spear. He burns the shield. Or sometimes it says chariots with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. What beautiful words, be still. But we do need a little, little bit of work with this because this isn't kind of like a mindfulness, like get in your lotus position and be still kind of new agey thing. This is, as I like the commentators to point out, drop your weapons, cease and desist. Right? There is a powerful and authoritative voice that has come in, has broken the silence and says, stop what you're doing and be still. All combatants are to cease struggle. They are to drop their weapons and they are to pay attention because there's a new warrior that has arrived on the battlefield. In other words, God is at war, but who's God at war with? God is at war with war. Last week, Jude and I had a chance to tour Gettysburg. You all probably know about Gettysburg. It's where the pivotal battle in the Civil War took place in early July 1863 that marked the turning point. It was a clash of two massive armies, the Army of Northern Virginia under General Lee, 75,000 men, the Army of the Potomac under General George Meade, 90,000 men. Can you imagine that many people who became like one of the largest cities in the whole country at that moment as those 160,000-plus people come together in this epic battle? They fought for three days, they left then after the Union defeated General Lee, and they left in their wake total desolation, total destruction. Over 51,000 casualties, meaning over 51,000 soldiers are either dead, wounded, or missing, making it the bloodiest single conflict, battle of the conflict. But what you really get a sense is if you visit the museum is that it wasn't just the armies. The whole area, the city was just in shambles. After that war, as the armies leave, they pack up and leave, but they leave behind. Wounded and dying and dead are everywhere. They're crowded into buildings. Every farm or garden becomes a graveyard. Churches, public buildings, homes, hospitals, they all become, they become hospitals. Amputated limbs pile up as high as fences. Right? This is the desolations of war. This is the horrors of war. It's broken bodies. It's shattered lives. It's burned up cities, right? That's what happens when war goes to a place. But not when God goes to war. And, and when God goes to war in Psalms 46, what's not left in the wake, it's not shattered bodies, but shattered weapons. Like, look what Yahweh has done. He's, he's breaking bows. He's shattering spears. He's burning up shields or chariots with fire. Amidst the utter chaos of the world, the psalmist looks beyond the earth that's shaking. He sees a God that is bigger than that chaos, bigger than that war, and he sees a refuge. He sees a fortress. He sees an ever-present help in trouble. And then he can say, we will not fear. I, th I want you to see the psalmist is not burying his head and saying, I'm not going to be afraid, I'm not going to look, and I'm not going to be afraid. He's not doing that. He sees the mountains coming into the sea. Right? He sees the mountains shaking. He sees the work, wars, and he says, I'm not going to be afraid. But neither is he running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Amidst the quaking mountains, he is steady because he knows that God is steady. 
On September 11, 2001, within just a few hours of being attacked, the massive, iconic Twin Towers, which had dominated the Manhattan skyline for three decades, along with thousands of lives, were gone. As we, many of us, most of us, watched on in stunned and horrified silence, it felt quite like the mountains were falling into the heart of the sea, that something beyond our imagination, that we never thought could happen, was happening right on our home soil, and it felt like the very pillars of our world were shaking. And amidst those horrifying events on September 11th, something surprising happened. The churches in New York City, which is not typically thought of to be a bastion of Christianity in our country, were packed. And they stayed packed for several months afterwards. People who would normally never step into a church were flooding into churches in New York City. And the passage that ministers turned to again and again amidst that chaos was Psalm 46. Why? Why did those ministers turn to Psalm 46? Because earthquaking, shake, earth-shaking events don't just shake the earth, they shake our souls. That's what was happening in New York City and around the country. September 11th forced us to confront our limitations. We thought something that would never happen here happened. We thought, I don't understand how the world works. And in light of that, we are forced to confront that we are very small and we are very fragile creatures. What do you do? You begin to look for something beyond your limits and the limits of the world. Right? These normal things that provide us security and refuge in light of September 11th, in light of these massive existential threats, they no longer work. It no longer works to go out and tell someone to go shopping or to do entertainment or to watch a college football game because that stuff feels silly. We can't just numb ourselves with our phone or do all the things we distract. We're confronted with something that is so much bigger than that, and we are completely inefficient. What do you do amidst such existential crisis? You're going to have to find something big, bigger than you, bigger than the world, and that is God. The psalmist has not escaped the troubles of the world. Mountains are crumbling, seas are raging, nations are in uproar, but he has something bigger. He has God, and that God is providing him a refuge. And he says, we will not fear. This is not faith over fear t-shirts. This is God over fear. Psalm 46 does not give followers of Jesus the license to bury our hands heads in the sand of very real existential threats to our planet and to our country, as if evoking our Christian faith somehow makes threats like climate change and global pandemics and political unrest disappear. We try that. Neither does Psalm 46 give us license to go around as followers of Jesus announcing that the world is burning up. Let's be honest, you and I have no idea when Jesus will return to usher in the age to come. Neither do we have any business getting in the business of predicting the end of the world. I won't be surprised if by now there are already predictions about what's happening in Israel will mean for the end of the world. Don't pay attention to them. Do not pay attention to them. That is not our task as Christians. Our task in the midst of global chaos is to point to the thing that is bigger than any of those threats. Our task as followers of Jesus is to be like that airline attendant who amidst the flight turbulence is a beacon of calmness in the midst of a chaotic world. 
We are to be non-anxious presence in a world that is very, very anxious. Not because we are great, but because we have a great God. A God who provides refuge. A God who provides stability in an unstable world. We are to show people where they can find hope in a world that feels hopeless. We are to say there is a God, there is a Jesus who in the midst of chaos, the living water is able to nourish our souls. It doesn't make the chaos go away, but we found the living water and that water nourishes our soul. And so when I look around the planet and the ecological crisis, I'm tempted to despair. I'm tempted to mourn, as I should, the way we've stewarded God's good creation. I'm tempted to despair the, the, the world that I'm handing on to my children but I remember that there's a creator God who will not destroy the earth, but will renew it. He will redeem it. And that gives me hope. This God is not going to destroy this earth. This God is going to redeem the earth. He's going to take all the ways that sin has damaged our earth, and he's going to bring it up in the new heavens and new earth, and he will restore it. And that gives me hope. When I'm tempted to despair that the political chaos of our country, the threat to democracy, when I'm discouraged and hopeless, I will move my eyes from Washington, D.C., and I will move them to the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. And I will remind myself my hope is never in a politician and never in a political party. My hope is in King Jesus. My hope now, my hope next year, my hope every year from now is always in King Jesus. He will usher in a kingdom that is so great that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is our king. That is our allegiance. And when I am tempted to despair at the violence of our world by the proliferation of guns in our country, I will remember that my God is not a pacifist. My God is a warrior. My God is a warrior who is at war with war. My God will take every last daggum assault rifle in this country, and he will smash it over his knee one day. He will take every last rocket launcher, every last artillery mortar and tank, and he will burn them up. Bill told us last week that we are to be providers of hope. Let us be providers of hope even in the midst of the existential crisis, even when it feels like the world is coming apart, it seems, because we have a big God. We've got a God who is a refuge, who is a fortress, who is an ever-present happen, Trevor, and we will not.